Chapter Forty of the Girl in the Golden Atom by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Adventurer's Return. The banker, lying huddled in his chair in the clubroom, awoke with a start. The ring lay at his feet, a shining golden band, gleaming brightly in the light as it lay upon the black silk handkerchief. The banker shivered a little for the room was cold. Then he realized he had been asleep and looked at his watch. Three o'clock. They had been gone seven hours, and he had not taken the ring back to the museum, as they had told him to. He rose hastily to his feet. Then, as another thought struck him, he sat down again, staring at the ring. The honk of an automobile horn in the street outside aroused him from his reverie. He got to his feet and mechanically began straightening up the room, packing up the several suitcases. Then, with obvious awe and a caution that was almost ludicrous, he fixed the ring in its frame within the valise prepared for it. He lighted the little light in the valise, and every moment or two went back to look searchingly down at the ring inside. When everything was packed, the banker left the room, returning in a moment with two of the club attendants. They carried the suitcases outside, the banker himself gingerly holding the bag containing the ring. A taxi he ordered when they were at the door. Then he went to the desk, explaining that his friends had left earlier in the evening and that they had finished with the room. To the taxi driver he gave a number that was not the museum address, but that of his own bachelor apartment on Park Avenue. It was still raining as he got into the taxi. He held the valise tightly on his lap, looking into it occasionally and gruffly ordering the chauffeur to drive slowly. In the sumptuous living room of his apartment, he spread the handkerchief on the floor under the center electrolier and laid the ring upon it. Dismissing the astonished and only half-awake butler with a growl, he sat down in an easy chair facing the ring and in a few minutes more was again fast asleep. In the morning when the maid entered, he was still sleeping. Two hours later he rang for her and gave tersely a variety of orders. These she and the butler obeyed with an air that plainly showed that they thought their master had taken leave of his senses. They brought him his breakfast and a bathrobe and slippers, and the butler carried in a mattress and a pair of blankets, laying them with a sigh on the hardwood floor in a corner of the room. Then the banker waved them away. He undressed, put on his bathrobe and slippers, and sat down calmly to eat his breakfast. When he had finished, he lighted a cigar and sat again in his easy chair, staring at the ring, engrossed with his thoughts. Three days he would give them, three days to be sure they had made the trip successfully. Then he would take the ring to the museum, and every Sunday he would visit it, until they came back, if they ever did. The banker's living room, with its usually perfect appointments, was in thorough disorder. His meals were still being served him there by his dismayed servants. The mattress still lay in the corner, on it the rumpled blankets 
showed where he had been sleeping. For the hundredth time during his long vigil, the banker, still wearing his dressing gown and slippers and needing a shave badly, put his face down close to the ring. His heart leaped into his throat. His breath came fast, for along the edge of the ring a tiny line of figures was slowly moving. He looked closer, careful, lest his labored breathing blow them away. He saw they were human forms, little upright figures, an eighth of an inch or less in height, moving slowly along one behind the other. He counted nine of them. Nine, he thought, with a shock of surprise. Why, only three had gone in. Then they had found Rogers and were bringing him and others back with him. Relief from the strain of many hours surged over the banker. His eyes filled with tears. He dashed them away and thought how ridiculous a feeling it was that possessed him. Then suddenly... His head felt queer. He was afraid he was going to faint. He rose unsteadily to his feet and threw himself full length upon the mattress in the corner of the room. Then his senses faded. He seemed hardly to faint, but rather to drift off into an involuntary but pleasant slumber. With returning consciousness, the banker heard in the room a confusion of many voices. He opened his eyes. The doctor was sitting on the mattress beside him. The banker smiled and parted his lips to speak, but the doctor interrupted him. "'Well, old friend,' he cried heartily, "'what happened to you? Here we are, back all safely.' The banker shook his friend's hand with emotion. Then, after a moment, he sat up and looked about him. The room seemed full of people, strange-looking figures, in extraordinary costumes, dirty and torn. The very young man crowded forward. "'We got back, sir, didn't we?' he said. The banker saw he was holding a young girl by the hand, the most remarkable-looking girl, the banker thought, that he had ever beheld. Her single garment, hanging short of her bare knees, was ragged and dirty. Her jet-black hair fell in tangled masses over her shoulders. "'This is Aura,' said the very young man. His voice was full of pride, his manner ingenuous as a child's. Without a trace of embarrassment, the girl smiled and, with a pretty little bending of her head, held down her hand to the astonished banker, who sat speechless upon his mattress. Lotto pushed forward. "'That's Mamita over there,' he said, pointing. "'Her name is Lilda. She's Aura's sister.' The banker recovered his wits. "'Well, and who are you, little man?' he asked with a smile. "'My name is Lotto,' the little boy answered earnestly. "'That's my father,' and he pointed across the room to where the chemist was coming forward to join them. End of chapter 40